Please open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. The book of James. We'll be in chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. Next week, uh, we'll have a guest preacher with us, a friend of our church, Andy Nacelli from Bethlehem Baptist uh, College and Seminary in Minneapolis. And he's an elder on the team there at North Church, just north of the city. He's preached for us before about a year and a half ago, and he was going to be in town, so we invited him to preach, and I've asked him to preach on the subject of justice in Scripture, God's justice and justice among men. And um, so pray for him as he prepares. Um, He's given considerable care to this topic. He and I have discussed these things, and I expect it will be timely, edifying, clarifying, and encouraging. We come now to James chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I'll read, listen with open ears. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this is God's word for us today. We are in James chapter 1, the first chapter of James, an introduction to the whole book, a chapter in which James briefly introduces us to all of the topics and themes of the book that he'll explore at greater length in the pages to follow. His goal is plain, he makes it plain. There in verse 4, let steadfastness and trial have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, not double-minded, not divided in your heart and in your allegiance, but complete, a whole person, a human as God was, God intended you to be, not hiding in the garden with Adam but living before God honestly and wholeheartedly and whole. The occasion for the letter is trial. His readers, under the trial of poverty, much of that brought about because of religious persecution, has given way to all kinds of troubles in the church. We'll explain and explore as to how that is the case as we go. Last week began with verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Today we begin with verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, He is merely circling around and refreshing the topic of trials and uh, testing, now to come at it from a slightly different angle. If last week he gave us that chain of salvation whereby we're led to completeness in Christ, uh, in this case, in this passage, we get a different chain, a chain of a different kind, which which we will see. If he began with a command last week, count it all joy when you meet various trials, he begins with a glorious promise this week. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. He will receive the crown of life. Well, what is that different angle that he opens 
the topic of trials and testing with this week? Is it not temptation? Mentioned five times in verses 3, 13, and 14. Uh, When he uses the word five times, you could say that's what he's talking about. Now, I've made a decision in breaking the passage up to preach this with verses 12 ahead and 16 through 18 below. One might argue that verses, verse 12, which mentions trial and testing and steadfastness, could be like a little bookend on the passage before it, because it began with those words even. And he's moved on to now from trials to the topic of temptation, a separate topic. Or maybe the temptation is uh, one kind of trial, and he's moved on to that. Uh, I see instead his return to those words of trial and test and steadfast as a hinge, refreshing, as I'm saying, opening up a new, uh, a new passage under the same header of trials and testing. And temptations, I do not see, and I do not believe you should see, as some separate kind of trial, at least as James is presenting it to us, but as a real temptation, a reality that is before all of us in the midst of every and any kind of our various trials. So it's natural that in speaking about trial and testing and holding out the prospect of completeness for steadfastness, that now he turns to the topic of how we get ourselves into so much spiritual trouble and where that spiritual trouble comes from, the topic of temptation ever before us in the midst of our trials, which are tests. Now, the the word temptation conjures up, at least in my mind, all kinds of images. I think of a serpent tempting the first human couple in the garden. Or maybe you imagine Satan tempting because he's the great father of lies. He's a great tempter, and he is our enemy, and he's called all of that in Scripture. And it's not wrong to think of Satan as a tempter, for that is, exactly, that is exactly what he is. Or maybe you imagine the image of falling, for we say we fall to temptation. So one who has stumbled and fallen under the weight of temptation, having, having given in. A human, a brother or a sister on the ground, having fallen to temptation. Those are all legitimate Legitimate images. Well, this passage that we have before us gives us both a darker picture of temptation, a more sobering and scarier picture of temptation that I hope will shock us all. And at the same time, it holds out a brighter future than you might usually imagine when you think of the topic of temptation two parts this morning. The truth about temptation and the second point will be the truth to beat temptation. And all of this is very important. Before I get into this, the truth about temptation. Here in verse 12, we read about the crown of life. What is the crown of life? We think of a crown and we think of a king's crown. A royal crown. And we as humans are royalty as God's image bearers. We bear his stamp. We go with his name. And we represent his, or his, his kingship or his vice regents. And as those made new by him and redeemed by him, we're restored to the image of our creator. We're, we're in the image of Christ now. And we, we're a little kings and queens. But that crown is not that kind of crown. This crown, this crown is an athlete's crown. Crown of life in that language and crown shows up enough in the New Testament. It's an important enough image that I want to spend a few minutes on it before we get into this point. Because I think it will heighten your sense of urgency with respect to this morning's subject. Crown, an athlete's crown. Consider that they would put a wreath 
on an athlete when an athlete has finished a race. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. There it is. But we, an imperishable wreath. Therefore, my brothers, Paul says, whom I love and long for, my, my joy and my, my crown, stand firm, trust in the Lord. Paul again, for, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at this coming? Is it not you? Okay, so what is the crown? It doesn't represent royalty in this case. The crown represents reward. Represents reward. And when the chief shepherd appears, Peter says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And as Paul said again, for what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord? Is it not you? You're our reward, you see. So it has to do with the reward. And what is that? What is that reward? It is the reward, there it is, of life. The crown of life. It's a reward of life. Similarly, as Paul wrote to Timothy, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Or Peter again, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, he says to elders. I'd put to you that all this is, is salvation. All this is. Really, all this is. We're just tempted to think, oh, that's like bonus. It's bonus. A theology of rewards would be for a different sermon. But in the context of James and even how Paul and the apostles use the imagery of a crown, it's not so much royalty as I'm putting to you as it is reward. And the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life is held out to us as motivation to press on in the race and to finish the race. So now a brief theology of salvation in James. Often we speak, not wrongly, of being saved past tense. And we think of being saved as a point in the past. And a real danger with only thinking of being saved as a point in the past is that you can think of it as a point and that is all. Anything that came before or after is neither here nor there. But as we see, the apostles in the New Testament often speaks of salvation as present. Being saved, working out your salvation or in the case of James, and the way he uses the language of saved, future. That doesn't mean that there wasn't conversion in the past. He's going to talk about how we were brought forth by the word of truth. But it means that when he's using the language of salvation, it remains a future reality. That word group for James. So listen, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Can that faith save him, he says in chapter 2? There's only one lawgiver and judge. and He is able to save and destroy. Or turn with me to the very back of the book. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, 20, excuse me. And I'll look for opportunities regularly to take you here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Will save his soul from death. So does your grammar of salvation include future salvation not replacing past saved but does it also include future and if it doesn't include future 
then I'll put to you, you may be in a very weak place, a dangerous place when facing temptation. This morning, James would have us feel the stakes involved in falling to temptation are very eternal souls. To do a little synthesis here, to zoom way out and put a whole bunch of things together in a, in a, in a little phrase that we've, we've come to use as Christians to capture the whole of the Bible's teaching on salvation, that we're saved by grace, and those who are saved by grace through faith persevere in that faith to the end. But the way that we are propelled along this path as Christians, the way that the genuineness of our faith is truly proven, is by a constant concerted effort to lay hold of the reward that lay at the end. So feel the blessing and the encouragement that if you confess Christ, that you have been brought forth by the word of truth. But feel no comfort or encouragement if you are nursing and hiding and loving and treasuring hidden sin. And so there's a real tension there. And I guess I'm willing to let it sit there. There will be moments when you find great encouragement from a word and moments when you are thrown off balance. And to the extent that we are not yet made perfect... To the extent that we continue to stumble in many ways, there will be times when you confuse yourself and scare yourself. And so this sermon can do a bit of that, even though there is plenty of encouragement. And I trust that if you're born of the Spirit of God, then God will have his way with you today. The truth about temptation first, and then the truth to beat it. Secondly, the truth about temptation. Verses 12 through 15. And we'll pick up here in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let's start, stop right there. Two surprises. First, on the subject of temptation, if you were to write a little pamphlet to advise your children or friends or what you have learned or what you think you need to do about it, would you start with what you say about God? Would you start, in other words, with theology? James, remember, a very practical letter, starts and ends in this section with theology. What we say about temptation, what we say about God. Verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Apparently we go there. And then verse 16, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights. He's talking about God again. I'll explain why in a bit. And maybe the second surprise in this little line in verse 13 is that anyone would say this, who's a Christian? Uh, Someone asked me that recently this week. I've never thought to even say that. And my response was, that's good. Uh, Yeah, that's because James wrote it and you've heard that line before. Sometimes... you know, knowing the Bible is a good thing, but then sin can be sneaky and we can work around the vocab. We know not to say I'm being tempted by God, I hope. Um, go to church enough and you won't say anything like that. But do you ever feel that God is rooting against you? That he'd be all right if you fail? Good riddance. Maybe even that he's setting a trap for you. James is a human like us. He knows God better than his readers, and so he's clarifying what God is like. But we need to do that for each other. We need to say to each other, don't say that. (laughs) Say this. And it starts with what we say and ends with what we say. There's a lot of heart and life in between the things that we say about God. James is good to start there for us. And he knows the human heart better than we do. I'm being tempted by God. Do you ever feel like he's 
he's against you, rooting against you, not for you? Well, maybe, maybe without this Bible verse so clear, you may have said that out loud, out loud yourself. Maybe you've just as well thought it yourself. Maybe you've read the scriptures about how God tested Abraham. Now, a little bit different than the trials that this church is going through. But he calls the trials the church is going through tests. God is using the trials, which are not good in and of themselves, in order to do something good, for those trials are testing the genuineness of their faith, even strengthening their faith, so that they might be steadfast. We looked at that last week. Well, sometimes God sends a trial in a more direct fashion, like he did with Abraham. Take your son Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him. Or when he tested Israel or others of his people in direct fashion. And you read that and think, well, why would he do it if, if he didn't give him the command, take your son up the mountain, well, then he wouldn't have the chance to possibly disobey it doesn't it kind of seem like God is playing tricks? All right, let's see how much you love me. How about this? No, it's not that way at all. In fact, that test was every bit as much for Abraham so that Abraham might know that he really believed that it's by faith alone that God would keep his promises to Abraham that God alone would keep them. All kinds of things God is doing in these stories. But maybe you've, you've concerned yourself with that logic. And if, if my trials are also tests, and if, if James gets to talking about temptation, and this book is filled with exhortations not to sin, then maybe, maybe my trials are actually tests that are actually God tempting me. James is saying, don't go there. God is in the trial to test, but he doesn't tempt anybody and no one tempts him. Very clean. He's a good preacher. He remembered his points. Okay, I even got his points backwards. God is not tempt, cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So take that to the bank. Count on that. Whatever else it is that's on your mind or that you're wrestling with or enduring, know that God is in it and around it and behind you and under you and about working in you, but he is not tempting you to sin. He himself is tempted by no one. Oh, good assurance. James is getting at this matter of the source of our temptations. So where are they from then? Uh, Satan, he could say that. Are they from other people? Lord knows other people tempt us to sin. Can I get an amen? There we go, thank you. Somebody did that last week. Some of the kids asked me to do it a little bit more, and I said, then you've got to give me some feedback. Don't leave me hanging. Others can tempt us to sin, of course. Did you know that you're a tempter? You might be your spouse's greatest tempter. Ouch. All the ugliness of their sin and their sin against you. You can't totally untangle that from their closest companion and human friend. It doesn't get them off the hook for their own sins. They're 100% on the hook for those and you are for yours. But just know when you look in the face of another person and it ain't looking that great back at you, not physically, that's a mirror. It's a mirror of something. Satan, he could have brought up people. This church is full of quarreling and jealousy and fights and fiery tongues, no doubt the temptations that some were feeling were the temptation to respond to others. The internet can be a temptation. There are others. James doesn't mention any of these. And not just because these were not around in his time. But because that's not where he's, 
he's going. So where does temptation come from, according to James? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Ouch. Ouch. Each person, which includes each person. Each person. Which includes me. Jesus was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. I have been tempted in many ways and have sinned. You, just the same. All of us are in this together. All of us have evil desires. All of us, born in Adam, have a disposition toward sin and sins of every kind. Your kids, parents, have a basic inclination to sin. And some of you are saying, of course. But some of you don't treat your children like they're basically sinners. They're beautiful. God made them. They're wonderful. They are super fun. And they're horrible. All of it at once. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. And that just isn't, they don't know not to run in the street. That's, they're perfectly pleased to ignore everything you say for their good when they feel like it. Foolishness is bound up with the heart of a child and the rod drives it far away. Some of our children are so sinful and so ugly and so hard to be around to some extent, in some cases, because we have not disciplined the foolishness out of them. Parents, each one, each one, evil desire comes up from within the human heart and very young. Kids, your parents have the same problem. Your grandparents have the same problem. Grandparents, you have the same problem. We've all got it. Everyone in the room. Countless applications could follow from that simple truth. So what about Satan? Well, I love how it has been put. Even the suggestion of the devil in the direction of sin does not occasion danger before they are made our own. Even the suggestions of the devil do not occasion danger before those suggestions are made our own. We're happy to be tempted. That's not just coming from outside of us. It may be provoked and stirred, but it's we who are provoked and stirred. Oh, so we come to the word on Lord's Day humbly to receive the help that we need. The source of sin, hopefully we've established that clearly enough now, Sin's strategy, temptation's strategy, excuse me, in four steps. It makes it easy for us. This is the chain. Sinful desire deceives. The first step is that of deception. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, own evil Desire, lured and enticed. Enticed is a kind of drawing word. Drawing. Luring is a dragging you away word. Probably has its origin in, on the sea in terms of fishing. But by the time it gets to us here, he's put it in reverse order. You think, are you a fisherman or what, James? You entice, then you lure away. Well, as it is, I think it was just an idiom at that point, like we have, I took the bait. When you say, I took the bait, you don't think of fishing. Um, You think deception. And yet, it has its root on the water. Well, James knew that full well, and and so would his readers have. Uh, Fishing is the practice of the, 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 the... the unapologetic practice of animal deception. Are they an animal? They're an animal, right? There's probably a better, more precise word for a fish, like fish. 
So it's fish deception. You put the lure there. There's no disclosure. There's no, hey, heads up. Now, if you bite this, it's on you. And there's no worrying about it. You trap the fish by making them think that that little shiny thing or that worm is going to do them good. And it might do them a little good. They might get a little bit of worm. Oh, but then you'll set the hook and you'll take them in. And you kill the fish, you'll put it in your mouth, and you'll digest it and all the rest. It's a bad day for that fish to bite. You know that the fish is deceived. Lured and enticed. That's exactly what temptation is. It is, it is deception. It begins with that first step of sinful desire deceiving us. And the second step, sin then is conceived. Deception to conception. There is the, the decision, even however subtle in the heart, to move toward it. Sin is conceived. What an image. And he'll keep up with this image of pregnancy to birth. Sin is conceived. And then there is growth, gestation. Sin grows, which is a process that is slow and hidden. And to the extent that you can tell, is promising. As it, is, as it ought to be when everything is right, the visibility of pregnancy holds forth the promise of life. But the fourth step is that of annihilation. Sin kills. It kills, brings forth death. When it is fully grown, it brings forth death. The death of a marriage when it is fully grown. The death of a relationship. The death of a job or a career. Your very soul's death, which is what's at stake here. Remember the last verse. If you can get to somebody when they're on their way to that lure and get them off it before they are dragged away never to come back, then you save their soul from death. Sinful desire conceives, excuse me, sinful desire deceives, sin is conceived, it grows, and then it, it kills. So to bring all of this into sharp focus, where does temptation get its power? You want to be able to answer that question. Where does temptation get its power? And in a word, temptation gets its power from lies. Lies. Lies about God, that he is not good and his commands are not good and his promises are not good. They're lies. Lies about God, that God's a liar. That's how temptation has to work. To take the bait as a Christian is to say God is a liar. Very careful with that. You'd say, I'd never say God is a liar. Maybe this will help you in temptation. To take the bait is to say God's a liar. Lies about ourselves. That we have the ability to, to perceive the outcome here. That our sensibilities and senses are right with respect to this or that lure. Lies about sin and its consequences and where it leads. Lies about the future, the reward. In other words, where does sin get its, gets its power? Sin holds on to us by holding out a reward to us. And as you hold on to that reward, the promise that sin makes, what it's going to give us, as you hold on to that reward... Almost like those self-tightening knots. You hold on tighter and it gets you tighter. The sin that promised joy and life has led me to the grave. Well, thank God we can sing a song like that and 
sing about that as past tense. Well, this morning, if you find yourself at church for the first time in some while, and you've got a guilty conscience, you know you've been living outside of God's will for you, and outside of His grace, and you feel ashamed, you're like, man, I wanted to go to church for encouragement. There is encouragement coming, but we are all put in our place first. This, friends, is our default setting. We walk according to the course of the world. We just fall in line. We just fall in line. And we take the next step, and we take the next step until we meet our end. Where does temptation get its power? It holds out to us the promise of reward, that we might hold on to that reward. That's where it gets its power. And this is the great concern of the book, this matter of self-deception, which is what it is. Remember verse 20 of chapter 5. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Remember that word wanders is the same word here for deception. Do not be deceived, planato. I won't do this with you in the Greek too often. Okay, if anyone wanders, planato. What's up with that? Remember from the first sermon, the stars would sit in the sky in a fixed way, but then there were these little lights that would keep moving. What were those? Those are the planets, little wanderers, planato. We're deceived. We're wanderers. We're unstable. We're double-minded. All of this goes together. And of course, there's a way out, a beautiful way out, a sure way out, an encouraging way out. You do not have to suffer under perpetual addiction of any kind. You don't have to stay in that sin which you're kind of famous for in your house. Anger, that sin you're famous for in secret. Lust, that sin you're famous for in your church. Gossip, um, we don't have to get used to ourselves and our sin. And we don't have to get used to each other. And that's super encouraging. Super encouraging. And at this point in the sermon, you might think, I'm glad he's saying it's encouraging, but I hope that's not it. And I hope it's not it too, and it's not. James is a good pastor, as we've said. We're learning from him as he cares for us, how we can care for each other, how God cares for us. And he does more than tell us not to say God is a deceiver. He does more than say, don't say I'm being tempted by God. You're the one who tempts yourself. Okay, James, thanks, I'm good. In our temptations, we need more than to know what God is not like and to know where to lay the blame for our temptations. You need more than that. Some of our strategies for temptations are even wussier than that. That's at least theology. That's at least deep stuff. If you're writing a, pa a pamphlet for temptation, it might be, don't do the thing. Don't say the words. Don't be mean. Be nice. Maybe think nice thoughts. Try not to do it next time. Ask forgiveness. That's a good one. All of these action words. James so far has spent two verses telling you what God is not like because you've been lying to yourself about him. He's getting all the way under the surface. And then secondly, he's putting you in your place and telling you all that stuff you think and you do, it all came from inside you anyways. But lest you think James is set against you and being mean towards you, keep listening. And this is why I know this passage goes with the temptation passage here. Because we need not only negatively to hear that we are the wrong ones and that God is not wronging us, but we need to hear what God is really like toward us. Us And we need encouragement in our temptation, not from within us, but from outside us. And so he says, and listen to his tenderness, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's entreating us. Every good gift, 
Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so we move from the truth about temptation to the truth to beat temptation, which is right here. Here's the truth to beat temptation. He hasn't moved on to a new topic, so let's not do that. This is still about fighting temptation. It's the truth to beat it. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers, my brothers whom I love. Church, do not be deceived. Beloved brothers and sisters, don't be, don't be deceived. It's the same topic. He said what we must not say, and now he says what we what we must say, I presume that, that we should not presume to have strength or to be steadfast in the face of temptation in our trials without verses 16 through 18. So don't even try. Keep verses 16 and 18. Dare I say they're more important to write out and Keep on your dashboard as you drive around. Then verses 13 through 14. Maybe this week you need verses 13 through 14 especially. But in the long haul, maybe what you really need, if you had to pick two or three verses, is verse 16 through 18. Verses 13 through 14 don't have power without verses 16 through 18. So let's take this in four parts as well. We looked at the four-part strategy that... That temptation takes, moving from deception to conception to gestation to annihilation. A surprise ending. And now we begin a four-part, a four-part story of a very different kind that moves in a very different direction. First, tell yourself the truth about deception. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Tell yourself the truth about deception and tell your brothers and sisters the truth. Because when you're self-deceived, you don't always know it because you're deceived. You did it to yourself. But the encouraging thing here is that you can be shocked out of that by having the truth told to you in the first place that you're deceived. So it's okay to say to each other, even when you're talking to a brother or a sister who can't see it, to say, I can tell you can't see it. But friend, dear brother, don't be deceived. None of us know one another's hearts like God does, but let us not pull the punch. Maybe better err on the side of saying, I believe you're deceived. Or more sharply, if you're really confident, brother, you're deceived. Then not to say that. We need to say it. It's biblical to say it. James says it to us. You're just quoting a Bible verse. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. The second step in this strategy to beat temptation, after telling yourself the truth about deception, is to conceive of God as he truly is. Don't just hit delete on the wrong thought about God. You need to replace that thought with a true thought, a beautiful thought, an amazing thought, a wonderful thought, a compelling thought. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Our God is good and he is not evil. He cannot be tempted to evil and he tempts no one to evil. He is good and he is not evil. He is a giver and he is not a taker. He's a giver of every perfect and good gift, which is to say in his gift giving called life and the sun and oxygen this morning and the moon last night. Which is to say in all these gifts, he is showing himself benevolent and good. He is exhaustive in his gift giving. Every perfect gift. 
He is even perfect in his gift giving. Just what we need, just on time, the right amount, the right match for us today. Conceive of God in your mind. This is where the battle against temptation is fought. It's in right thoughts about God who is good toward us and would give us no evil command. Who is a giver to us of many good gifts. Ponder all of his good gifts to you. Their perfection. Their benevolence. Their exhaustiveness. And he is a father of lights. Not a father of lies. A father of lights. Which is to say he's the one who put the stars in the sky. And set the moon and the sun in their place. His creative power is on display everywhere. And those lights. A sign of truth and Light that expose the darkness. He's not hiding anything from us. He's illuminating the world for us. He's a father of lights and not a father of lies. So call him that. Trust him as such. Praise God we have a father who calls himself a father. But not only that, the father of lights. He is so great as to be the creator of all things. And yet he is not just the creator of lights, but he is... The Father of lights, our very Father. His nearness and His greatness in a phrase, a title. And finally, He is unchanging and He is not shifty. There is no shadow due to change and no variation in Him. We prayed in song before the sermon not to chase the shifting shadows, all the variety of temptation that are out there. No, don't chase shifting shadows. Fix your eyes on the one who doesn't move. He made the moon and the sun, and they move as he made them to, but he doesn't move. He doesn't change towards you with his mood. He's not in a good mood toward you on a Sunday when the preacher was in a good mood. He's not in a good mood toward you on a day when those in your life are in a good mood towards you. He's not in a good mood towards you when you're in a good mood. Now, he may be set in wrath against you if you're outside of Christ. He can be angry at sin. His posture is that of a father. His arms are open with grace and more grace. And that doesn't change. He doesn't get older and change on us, becoming senile. I thought he loved me all those years. He did. I keep reminding myself. But he hates me now. But he's lost his mind. We deal with each other in old age. And we change. He doesn't change on us like bad friends. And he doesn't change on us like good friends, even the best friends on a bad day. All of us are changing on each other. And it is very encouraging to know that he does not change. Which means when he gives you his word, he holds out a reward of the crown of life, it is good. His word doesn't change. It is ever true. Tell yourself the truth about deception. Conceive of God as he truly is. Ponder how truth grows. Of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Oh, what is the very best gift that God has given to us besides those that I've mentioned, but the gift of new life? See, he's encouraging us now. Be encouraged. You're here. You're confessing Christ. You believe these things. You stumble in many ways, as James has said, me too. Take great encouragement that you have been brought forth by the word of truth. The word of truth from the unchanging God who does not change in his commitment to you. Sin brings forth death. Our great God, the father of lights, not only brought forth the universe, but he brings forth a new creation in a new people, the church, in the making of Christians. And if you've come to believe and to trust these things we've said, if you came to hear this word and say, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm tempted. Yes, God help me. That's sure a good sign that you have been brought forth by the word of truth, which is partly a word of truth concerning you, that you've embraced it. Take great encouragement in that. And don't miss this word about the word. 
What is the means by which God brings about the new birth, a new creation? But his word preached and read and said to each other. So I have no doubt he could bring forth a new creation in this room this morning by his word of truth preached. Oh, how we sing and rejoice in the word. Ponder how it grows. As we sang in O for a thousand tongues, you speak and hearing his voice, new life the dead receive. That's exactly James's point. Now finally, picture where the truth leads us. That, verse 18, we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is growth imagery. This is, but more than growth to maturity and completeness, this is growth to completeness and then to multiplication. And it's not unlike what the Apostle Paul, when he said, when he said, all creation is growing, waiting the revealing of the sons of God. God will, will reset the whole earth, a whole new creation in a place. And he's begun that whole new creation in a people, his church. And that's what this means. He's brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits, the first to spring up from the ground. So as we look around the world today, in our own hearts, of course, where sin lurks, but as we look at sin ravaging, sin unhindered, destroying, tearing the place up, tearing people up, people tearing themselves up, We look out with sadness and we also call it what it is. Sin leads to death. There is doom and gloom to be had apart from Christ. But we get to do more than look out at the world and see sin and where it leads. We can look at each other and see the word of truth born as a seed that has come up from the ground, the first fruits of his creatures. And we can see all that God is doing and is committed to do in his new creation. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Receive this promise, friends, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you do love us. And to the extent that we love you, it is because you have loved us first. And you have given us a very great promise of the crown of life. And we give you thanks for the new birth, for bringing us forth by the word of truth. But we also thank you for this encouraging word that you are not done with us yet. For we are not who we ought to be, who we want to be in our best moments. But you hold out this crown of life and you've given us a taste of this life in the spirit. So help us to hold on to this promise that you hold out before us to speak true words about you to ourselves and to one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.